So before we get started, here's just a quick update on the awards front. We're delighted and honestly still quite shocked to announce that we did actually win. We won the News and Current Affairs category at the Australian Podcast Awards and we were so surprised that we gave really poor thank you speeches. So I'm going to try and do it here properly. Thank you to all our guests. Just to let you know, you're all going to be in the National Australian Film and Sound Archives. Thank you to Shinwarazi. Also, thanks to our team, Buffy Gorilla, Gavin Neighbour at the Hallwood Studio, Seb Danta for our gifts and our fantastic logo. Thank you to Susie Wilkins, who writes the best catchy, muscular, authoritarian theme tune any podcast could want to have. And most of all, thank you to you, our listeners. If you want to see some pictures, go to our Facebook page. We do look like we've just escaped from a Eurovision Song Contest, but then you'll know why we're a podcast and not a TV show. Thank you, and please keep listening. Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. In Australia, the China boom has ricocheted through every economic sphere. One that's been transformed by money from China is education, which has become Australia's third largest export, worth $28 billion, more than natural gas or tourism. At the end of last year, there were around 170,000 Chinese university students in Australia, 43% of the total international cohort. Students from the People's Republic of China make up 60% of international students at the University of Sydney, and a quarter of all students at that university come from China. Overseas students now bring in more funding than domestic students. Interestingly, the very number of Chinese students in Australia is a problem for their fellow classmates. That's what we discovered when we asked one of my students, Yang Chuo, to interview some other Chinese students. In the interests of getting candid answers, he didn't ask anyone to give their names, and he told them they could speak in whatever language they preferred. When he asked how the reality of studying in Australia measures up to their expectations, many talked about the number of their compatriots here and how difficult it is to get out of that Chinese student bubble. There's too many foreigners in the school that... Uh, I just want to meet more like the, I mean, the Australian local students. For, for me, I don't see many, and most of them are from uh, the other country, especially China. <laughs> yeah. There's quite a lot of Chinese students here, and my English progress is quite slow. Some days I feel like I can get by only speaking Chinese. From the point of view of school, the ratio of international students is extremely high, particularly students from the Chinese mainland. I wasn't really expecting that, but everything else is good. So what are some of the other issues created by this student boom? We're joined today by Linda Jakobsen, the founding director and CEO of China Matters. She's also the co-author of a policy brief called Is There a Problem with Chinese International Students? 
Later on, we'll also be talking to Fran Martin from the University of Melbourne, who's been studying the motivation of female university students from China. And we'll hear more from some Chinese students. Linda, welcome to the programme. Thanks for having me. It's a delight. Linda, how heavily dependent are Australian universities on income from Chinese students? And what kind of risks do you think this brings? I think the dependency is high. Obviously, individual universities are not publishing exact figures. We only have a sense that international students generally, and especially for certain universities, PRC students in particular, are very important to the well-being and funding of the university. Research by some of the larger universities, the so-called G8 universities, is often funded to a large extent by revenue from international students. And as we just heard, if 60% of international students at some of the key universities in Australia are from the PRC, then yes, I think the dependency is indeed quite high. And it's been a very fast ramp-up, hasn't it? We see these figures that, for example, the University of Sydney has seen overseas fees almost double in just three years. That seems to be the case in a lot of universities, that we've seen this sort of sudden influx of students from China. How much of a concern is that the speed of that ramp-up? I think, like, as you know so well, with everything to do with China, it is often the speed which takes us by surprise, which sort of we find quite confronting that it happens so quickly. So we're looking at probably within 10, 12 years, it's really become a well-known issue that a huge number of PRC students are part of our key universities. Now, we have to remember that especially in the business schools of the G8 universities, is where there's a heavy influx of PRC students. It's not all faculties which have a lot of PRC students, but especially the business schools. Uh, PRC students, like other international students coming from other parts of Asia, tend to like to major in business administration, commerce, accounting, and so on. For example, if you studied history, you wouldn't necessarily have such a dominance of PRC students in your class. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there are certain subjects that are really hot in China and you're seeing degrees that are actually almost being designed for the China market. I know that communication studies is an area of immense interest from Chinese students. And I think universities are kind of cashing in on that, aren't they? They are indeed. Of course, several university administrators said to me, during the time when Bates Gill and I were researching for that China Matters Recommends policy brief that you mentioned about Chinese international students, that PRC students are very agile at looking at what is needed to become an immigrant in this country. What are the categories which are the most likely to lead to immigration? Um, and across the board, all the vice-chancellors that I spoke to, and I spoke to five out of the eight uh, G8 university vice-chancellors during the course of our research, they all said that emigrating to Australia is a very high priority. We have to accept that. And obviously, these subjects, which are the most popular, are at least perceived as a gateway to becoming a permanent resident and possibly then even 
a citizen of Australia. In your report, you cited the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption, which found pressure on university staff to pass international students because of university budgets. How serious and widespread a problem is this? You know, Graham, we don't have good data on these cases. It's quite obvious that it is some kind of a problem. To what extent it is a large or middle-sized or small problem, I could not say. But I think from the point of view of the reputation of Australian higher education and Australian universities, there should be no cases of someone on shaky or dodgy grounds being accepted into university. I do know for a fact myself from my own interviews, obviously only individual cases, that at universities in Sydney, student from the PRC has been allowed to enroll with subpar English language scores and told that you have to elevate these English language skills by the time you graduate. I've heard from several Australian students that this is quite widespread. It's one way to force them to take, again, paid-for tutoring or paid-for English language classes so that when they graduate, they have the right skills. But it's also very risky because what are you going to do when it comes time to graduate, for the student to graduate, and the student has not passed the needed English test and for two years or one year, whatever the case might be, maybe sometimes four years, has hampered or contributed in a negative way to the classroom teaching because of these poor language skills. And I go as far as to say that there's even been a case where there's been pressure put on the dean of a school at an Australian G8 university to pass students, letting them graduate even though they never did pass the English language skill test because the parents had already from China bought tickets to come to graduation ceremony. And we can't possibly tell the parents that your kid is not going to graduate. What kind of a risk do you think it poses for educational institutions, the fact that increasing portions of their budget are coming from China and the maybe some this could almost be used as a tool of economic warfare. We saw at the end of last year, at the height of the debate about the need for a foreign interference law, the Chinese embassy actually issued a public safety warning to Chinese students in Australia. Did you read that as a kind of veiled warning? Absolutely. That, I think, was the first very small step in the use of economic coercion. Whether or not that safety warning by the PRC, both embassy and consulates across Australia, will be heeded. We won't know until a year's time at the beginning of 2019 when we see the numbers for enrolments. At the moment, the Australian government is telling us that despite tense relations, there has been no change in the enrolments, but it's actually much too early to see have those warnings been heeded. Now, Directly to your question, Louisa, I think the high dependency on PRC student enrolments and the fees that they're paying is a real, genuine risk for Australian universities. I think all the major universities are keenly aware of that risk. This is not the only risk, this dependency on just one cohort of students. And they're doing a lot and they're trying their best to diversify. But to be honest, the country 
where there is a tidal wave, I like to say, of international students looking for a good place to do their studies abroad is the People's Republic of China. So however much one tries to diversify, maybe in the long term, that will help balance out the situation. But in the short to medium term, it is the PRC students who will constitute, I think, the bulk of international students in Australia. And when it comes to that safety warning issued by the embassy and the discussion about a foreign interference bill, we asked students to describe whether it had changed the atmosphere for them, and if so, how much. I've never heard of the anti-espionage bill, but in one class, one student in my tute group is always asking me, what are you doing here? Are you a spy? I was astonished. I didn't really know why they were joking about that, but it made me really uncomfortable, because of course, I'm not a spy. And when they ask me every week, it starts to get a little offensive. I'm not by or I'm just a student, so I don't care about the policy stuff. I just focus on my study and I get a job. So I don't think the policy stuff can affect me a lot. Because even if you turn into government and say Australia is bad, I still pick, will pick Australia for my like, master education because it is the best in my heart. So I have already made the decision. So I don't think that will affect me a lot. Maybe because I don't really watch any news, so I don't really get like how intense it is. But my dad did um, send me a message saying, oh, the government already warned the students, so you better you know, take care of yourself as well. But I mean, I just live like normally every day, so... Before I came to Australia, my parents do told me like, oh, there's some news about the politics things, like the Australians do not like us. When I go to the visa, I mean, visa application, I'm a little bit concerned about it. But after all, it's very fluent. I didn't get any rejection or something. Since I come here, I didn't feel like the people just treat Chinese students differently or other things. I didn't feel many effects. On this, I think maybe this just like the political things, like the Chinese need to be convincing people not moving to like the Australian and other things. I don't think that's a concern for me. Yeah. Okay, here we'd like to bring in Fran Martin from the University of Melbourne. Fran's been tracking about 50 Chinese students through several years of study here in Melbourne. She's been monitoring their progress and their views. It's a project which has become incredibly topical, especially given the debates surrounding new laws on espionage and foreign interference. There's been heated discussion about these new laws, with accusations that even the debate is creating anti-Chinese racism. Fran, maybe you can start by telling us about your students' reactions to all this and if it's had any impact on them personally. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, question and I raised it in discussion with um, my participants last year when all of this kind of blew up in a big way in the Australian media. When I sort of described what was happening was kind of incomprehension. They didn't know about the stories. They were sort of saying, what? What? You're saying that they're saying we're spies? How could that be? You know, sort of just not understanding. Later on, Julie Bishop's uh, what she called the blunt warning to Chinese students to stop imperiling free speech on Australian campuses was translated for an article on WeChat. And at that point, it was circulated in our own WeChat group. And then we had the discussion. And yeah, I mean, the general reaction was obviously a negative one. Students were very aware of what they perceived as a double standard, really, um, insofar as 
The argument of the Australian media and government spokespeople seem to be that in asserting their own political views, Chinese students in the classroom or out of the classroom on campus were imperiling the free speech of Australian students or, or other students. But the Chinese students themselves saw that what they were doing was actually expressing their right to free speech. They just had a different opinion. I can understand why students do that, but I think it would be better to find a different way to communicate. If you do it in the classroom, there are other students there, but of course I can understand the ideas and emotions they want to convey. So I think you can hold your view, and the professor can hold his view. He just introduced his view, but that is not right, you know what I mean? So I, I don't think like speaking something is wrong. I think it is uh, a part of the freedom of speech. So you can discuss with them, but you can't like, just uh, say he's wrong or he's ugly in the public. This is what I am thinking. I don't agree with this way of thinking. Those students who raise these types of issues have been brainwashed by the Communist Party. They've been brainwashed. They've received patriotic education, this kind of propaganda since they were kids, and that's what they're repeating. And when they leave China, they use this to refute Western academics. So it's not a normal academic debate and exchange. To me, I feel that the lecture's understanding isn't really sufficient, and when they express their views, these are often not properly developed. At the same time, students also put forward their opinions, because our education is like that. It's not like we come to Australia and immediately accept all your culture. So this can cause debate, and both sides can stick to their own position and argue. So I think this can create a bad situation, but I don't think people should blame Chinese students. So that to accuse them of somehow damaging free speech by expressing that opinion seemed like a massive double standard. Also, some of them sort of said it seems like the Australian government and media are stuck in a kind of time warp. Like, are we still thinking in that sort of Cold War way where anyone from China must be an agent, you know, of the communists and this is a threat to Australian ways of life or sovereignty or whatever? That seemed very outdated and not at all to match up with their sense of themselves. Negative reactions, incredulity. There were a lot of laugh-till-you-cry emojis kind of exchanged <laughs> that week. Like, this is so ridiculous, I can't believe it's happening. So that was fairly depressing for them. And since that time, a couple of my participants have kind of chatted with me one-on-one -on -one and asked my candid opinion on what's happening with attitudes towards Chinese people in Australia and whether I think, you know, as a white person, I guess, are non-Chinese Australians particularly biased against China? Does this mean maybe they should consider not staying on after their studies, not going for the graduate working visa or, or applying for PR, not considering immigration? And did any of them have examples of a sort of different level of racism or exclusion, whether it be overt or hidden, that they were experiencing? And the other thing I guess happened towards the end of last year was a warning from the Chinese embassy about the safety of Chinese students in Australia. Did they take any notice of that and did it affect their behaviour or their perceptions? Yeah, I think the second thing, the warning from the embassy and the consulates, that did have an effect. Everyone forwarded that. I saw that a number of times in my own WeChat feed and people seemed to take it pretty seriously. Uh, I guess uh, my sense was... 
impressionistically that they felt, well, we're getting this from official representatives, you know, from the consulate, from the embassy. It would be true then. They weren't seeing it as politicking, which is what I think a lot of perhaps commentators here see it as. It's it's like a, a counter move by China, if you like, by scaring the students. They're sort of able to say, look, all of this could disappear. All of this income that you derive from our students, we can have an effect on that. That's the way I saw it. But I think the way the students saw it was as a genuine warning that perhaps things are not safe for them. Mm. I saw that a lot more than increased instances of anti-Chinese racism. I mean, those are sort of a constant undercurrent of people's experience here. I don't, I can't track, like we, can, we don't have a scientific measure of whether that increased after the stuff in October. Do you think this debate in any way has changed the way Chinese students feel about China? Because there's several studies that show studying abroad in many cases seems to make Chinese students more patriotic than when they left China. Does this tally with your research at all? It's interesting. That's actually a question that I ask my participants at regular intervals. And I have also seen those studies you refer to, which talk about increasing levels of patriotism over after spending a, an amount of time abroad. I would say that when I first ask that question, within the first minute or so, quite a lot of participants will say, oh, yes, everyone knows that being abroad makes you more patriotic. But... Underneath that, I then I think there's something more underneath it. When I continue to discuss it with them after that initial statement and say, what do you mean? How do you feel more patriotic? What aspects uh, are you feeling patriotic about? Or what what is it that makes you assess yourself as patriotic? I get a much more complex response. I mean, I think on one hand, we can understand that response with reference to levels of social exclusion in Australia. I think it's quite natural if you're studying somewhere or living somewhere and you feel like people, some people don't really want you there, they don't really understand you, they don't really make any effort to understand you, they don't want to give you a job, they don't want to talk to you in class or whatever, you start to feel a bit discouraged and maybe feel homesick. So this is um, one thing that comes up when I say, what do you mean by you love China now more than you did? Sometimes students will say things like, oh, I just really miss my mum's cooking or I really miss all my friends. I just feel like... Life is more convenient in China. You know, you can pay with your phone for everything. We don't need cash. Australia's rather backward, you know, by comparison. So now that I'm abroad, I appreciate all these things about China. So those are kind of everyday life elements. They're not anything to do with government, politics, policy, the party. That's more just like I miss the everyday life I had in China and now I appreciate more of that than I did when I was actually living there. But they will interpret that as patriotism as aiguo, like literally loving my country because I'm away from it. In other ways, I also see on further discussion, I see quite a lot of participants and Chinese students generally taking up a more reflexive attitude towards their Chinese national identity, if you like, but as a result of being abroad. So whether that's reflecting on different aspects of the way culture is governed here than there, so say freedom of the press, say internet censorship or the lack thereof, there's something that particularly affects this generation of digital natives. You know, they're very aware of how the government regulates the internet back in China because they see the stuff disappearing and it annoys them because you know, they, they wanted to read that article or whatever. So it's, it's a very obvious way that culture differs or the regulation of culture differs within China to, compared to outside of it. So these kinds of 
comparisons will be drawn. I, that doesn't make people less patriotic necessarily, but it makes them reflexive and, and it, it makes it incumbent on us as analysts of this situation to pull apart that question of what is patriotism anyway. You know, you might like this aspect of a particular nation or a particular culture, but you might not like this other aspect. The other thing that I'd say that helps make students a little bit more reflexive is the opportunity that they get to meet people from different parts of the Chinese world. That was Fran Martin from the University of Melbourne. Linda, in the report, you mentioned a US study that found 40% of Chinese students had close to no local friends at all. And your report also shows they're 10% less satisfied with the chances to interact with everyday Australians than other overseas students. Why do you think students from the People's Republic find it harder to integrate than other students? That's a really good question. That 10% that you cited was from an unpublished study by the Department of Education of the Federal Australian Government. So it's just not some study. It's an annual survey that they conduct every year among all international students. And the PRC students were quite clearly less content. So when there are so many people from your own country around you, I don't think this is in any way particularly Chinese. You don't have an opportunity, quite honestly, to interact so much with others because there are always PRC students around you. That's one thing. The other is, of course, lack of confidence in English language skills. So that's another reason why it's more difficult to reach out to so-called ordinary Australians. And I think, quite simply, universities have to do much more for international students, just generally speaking, and obviously that includes then the PRC international students, to help them engage with society at large. Our policy brief has several recommendations. One of them, which I like the best, and I'm going to actually pursue quite ardently, is Australia needs an international student weekend. Let's talk about some of the cases that we have heard about in the news. I mean, there have been at least, I think, five cases of Chinese students complaining about language used by lecturers in Australian classrooms. Uh, In one particular example, a student from the People's Republic of China made a secret recording of his lecturer at the University of Newcastle as he confronted the lecturer for referring to Taiwan as a country. And the student sent a copy to the Chinese-language media outlet Sydney Today, and we have the audio of it. It starts off with the student telling the lecturer that Chinese students make up one-third of the class and their feelings need to be considered. But at the professor, you had to, you had to like, consider all the students' feelings. Exactly, all the students, yeah. not one set of yeah, students. Yeah, yeah, but Chinese student is the one-third of this classroom. You make us feel uncomfortable. Exactly, it's one set, it's not the yeah. entire classroom. Yeah, but you have to show your respect. To what extent do you think this large cohort of Chinese students is changing the way in which China is discussed or not discussed on Australian campuses? <sighs> this is a very difficult question. My own sense is that we're still looking at individual cases which are really exaggerated, um, rather unpleasant, definitely awkward. I think the vast majority, and I want to underline the word a vast majority, of Chinese international students, PRC international students in this country come here because they're interested in a good education. Australia has a reputation as providing a good higher education. I definitely think 
that we are going to see more of these cases simply because we are dealing with generation of PRC citizens who have become very attuned, very sensitive, some would say, about foreigners not understanding the nuances of their country, and they will voice these at times very nationalistic opinions in rather a harsh manner. I think we're going to see more and more of that. But it's still, even though it's a pain in the neck, I'm sure from the point of view of a lecturer, it's still just a small percent of PRC international students thinking that they would want to obstruct teaching or obstruct a discussion in class. As someone who's taught tutorials with many Chinese students, and I'm sure you've had this experience as well, you face a dilemma about the mix of the class at the start of term. And it's not uncommon to be approached by students asking to be admitted to a group away from Chinese students so they can share their views more freely. This has happened to me a couple of times, and I guess it's the kind of problem not just for Chinese students, but other students within the classroom. We have discursive spaces being shut down in a way that many of the students probably don't understand. Oh, absolutely, it's a problem, and I have had that experience. And I don't want to in any way kind of shove this issue under the rug, so to speak, um, despite of what I said just now, that the vast majority of people are not going to start disrupting lectures and discussions. Certainly, PRC students are acutely aware that they have to toe the party line when they speak about issues which are sensitive to the Communist Party of China. And even more so now, as Xi Jinping starts his second term and has become very precise about language that is used, terms that are used, views that are expressed, I think certainly they would much prefer not to be in a tutorial class with other PRC students because they can't be sure is something they're going to say possibly going to get them in some kind of trouble. When I say trouble, it means maybe they're going to be reprimanded, maybe not have a good chance for a promotion when they get back, not have the chance to get a job or whatever the reprimand might be. So I think the more we can separate PRC students out from each other, the better. But it's impossible when the numbers are such that you can't possibly have one PRC student per tutorial because there's just so many of them. This is something that every teacher is going to have to learn how to deal with. And hopefully, we're going to become, as teachers, lecturers, more attuned to this. In your policy brief, you said the Australian government shouldn't remain silent about attempts to stifle academic freedom. And one of the highest profile voices has been that of Frances Adamson, the head of Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. She made a rather pointed speech at the University of Adelaide's Confucius Institute. The silencing of anyone in our society, from students to lecturers to politicians, is an affront to our values. Enforced silence runs counter to academic freedom. It is only by discussion, and of course discussion which is courteous, that falsehoods can be corrected. As China becomes more important to Australia's future and to that of the world, it follows that there will be more scrutiny of China, including the ways in which it seeks to exercise influence internationally. Linda, is this approach enough, or does the government have a role in securing a more binding code of conduct for universities? And do you think it's the government's role to do this? 
Um, or to put it in another way, given the massive influx of income these universities are getting from overseas students, can they be trusted to manage these problems? I'm not one to support the idea that the government is going to give blanket directions or orders or instructions to all universities. I think uh, the whole idea of a university independently deciding certain very important parts of its work must be retained. So I don't think that the government can specify, as you said, some kind of guidelines for every university to adopt. But certainly speeches like the one by Francis Adamson are important. I think we need to hear that kind of language being used by the Minister of Education. I think much more often we need to hear even from the Prime Minister on issues related to the People's Republic of China and some of the difficulties Australians have with the idea of interacting so closely with a one-party authoritarian state. We need to just, generally speaking, in Australia know so much more about China. It would help in dealing with both the good and the bad, as there is in any relationship. As for the universities, can they be left to their own devices, so to speak, because they benefit so considerably from the revenue that the international students bring? I think as long as their media is a watchdog, as long as other students bring to the fore, bring out into the open any complaints and their own views with regard to some of the difficulties in others trying to stifle discussions, for example, in the university. The universities themselves are going to have to understand that for the benefit of Australian students, but also for the benefit of other international students, they're going to have to adopt guidelines. Some of them are in the policy brief by Bates Gill and myself on how to deal with very active nationalistic PRC students who make demands. I think there should be a code of conduct, but I wouldn't want to see the government dictate what's in that code of conduct. I think the university should be obliged to think very carefully, but also should be expected to adhere to that code of conduct. I wanted to come back to this whole idea of economic coercion, and I think the one case study that people in education tend to look at is the University of UCSD, San Diego, where they had a commencement address, I think it was, by the Dalai Lama, and then saw a complete drop-off in Chinese student numbers, no research students from China, all kinds of institutional links with China being shut off. How can Australian universities both keep their academic freedom, their freedom of space to discuss these issues and avoid this kind of thing from happening to them in future? I think the Dalai Lama is absolutely a special case. I think as long as the PRC is as powerful as it is today and as one can expect its power to grow, inviting the Dalai Lama as a commencement keynote speaker will lead to the PRC retaliating with the kind of measures you mentioned, cutting off government funding for students coming to that university. It's a pretty clear-cut case. Much more difficult is the case of the University of Maryland, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure it was the University of Maryland, who, after a long competition, chose one international student to give the commencement speech. It happened to be a PRC international student. They weren't seeking a PRC international student. She gave a brilliant speech where she 
spoke very warmly, glowingly of some of the great experiences she had had in the United States and how much she had learned, among others, from a democratic society. And in social media, there were, in the beginning, a few attacks which then went viral by nationalist students and other PRC citizens against her. I won't go into the details, but you can see where I'm coming from. Now, this also led to a drop in enrollments from the PRC international students. I don't have the numbers, and I haven't seen any study on it. I just happen to know someone who works at the University of Maryland who told me about this. So what are we going to do about that kind of an instance, which really, if you invite the Dalai Lama, you know that you will be, quote, unquote, punished as a university administrator. But in this case, in a academic surroundings, freedom of speech, commencement speech made by an international student who speaks well of the experiences she has had during her university years, we are really dealing with a very big challenge because the only way to deal with that is obviously to protect academic integrity, academic freedom of speech, the right of any student from any country to stand up and share her or his experiences. So there I think the universities will need support from the government, support in the way that someone should come out and speak in favor of the university who has chosen that international student, for example. You can't leave a university alone to suffer the consequences. And because I've understood it's so cutthroat competition between the G8 universities in this country, I would hate to see one university suffer so-called economic punishment, coercion, and the others not speaking up on behalf of academic freedom. I think those kind of instances could be ahead of us in this country, and we should be prepared for them. Thanks to our guests, Linda Jakobsen and Fran Martin, to the students who took the time to share their thoughts, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. I'm Graham Smith, and you've been listening to the award-winning Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Linda and Fran's research. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. And thank you, dear listeners, for your support and encouragement over the last year or so. We wouldn't be Australia's best podcast without you. Bye for now. Thank you.